Okay, very good. All right, so we are doing something new this morning. Uh, new as far as my, my style of teaching. Uh, we are going to go through an entire book <clears throat> of the book of 1 Corinthians. We may continue on to the 2 Corinthians. Time will tell. Uh, sometimes the Lord will just reveal things as we go. But as we were going through, as I was going through our, our reading plan, our way life reading plan, we're just now finishing up uh, today, in fact, the last book of the book of Romans. And tomorrow morning we start 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And so it, it's, uh, it's good timing for this. So uh, many of you are, that are a part of the reading plan uh, can read ahead. Uh, take a lot of notes as you're doing this, and then this this uh, series from set Sunday to Sunday will follow behind uh, as we go deeper into a lot of these things. But why why Corinthians? Why why now? Uh, you know, in Waylife's short history, we've spent a significant amount of time reading uh, and studying the Book of Acts, and the reason that is is because we are pretty fascinated with how the early church functioned. Uh, what did it do? How did it, what was this way? Because they weren't known as the church, uh, or they weren't known as, I should say, Christians, until that was a name given to them before they, they refer to themselves as people of the way, and way is capitalized of Jesus, people of Jesus. But, but as we've talked about in the past, there is a way that Christians should live. And the way that we live and the way that we conduct our lives should be in contrast to the way non-Christians and the rest of the world lives their lives. And if there is no distinction, then I would question, are we following a different way? Are we truly following Christ? So if you read through the book of Acts, you see all of these really interesting, almost random examples of this and that, of the early church and what they faced and what they did and the descriptions about them and the way that the writer of Acts, which was Luke, uh, goes through and, and describes many of these things. Um, that combined, obviously, with the Gospels uh, just shows us uh, in the picture of what Jesus had done that I think we can all probably admit that the church today looks a lot different than what the church looked like in the book, in the Gospels, and specifically in the book of Acts. Um, and, and so while we would say that the church was um, certainly not pure from the perspective as it made mistakes even early on, it was purer from the perspective that we didn't have denominationalism, we didn't have all of these rules and regulations, and the church was this very organic thing that was directed by the Holy Spirit uh, purely to to take on all, break just new grounds and 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 create what has never been created before, uh, break and smash sometimes violently into cultures and mindsets and. Uh, Judaism versus Gentile beliefs and, you know, all of these kinds of things. And now all of this, this new um, teaching coming up from within the Jews, uh, uh, these, this, this sect called Christians or people of the way. And so you had a lot of this going on. What did that look like? So we spent a lot of time looking at this. So now, now as we move forward, um, we 
we now, you know, we've been established as a church waylife community, and certainly the church of, uh, the, at large has been established for many, many, many years. And it's had and suffered a lot of problems along the way. And I would say that the church in the West, specifically in the United States of America, um, has changed a lot recently, hasn't it? Uh, we've seen policies change, doctrines change. We've seen, we've seen uh, a lot of the church, instead of the church influencing the culture, the culture influencing the church. And a lot of the way that we walk, it looks different today than what it may have done in the past. And so um, you see this collision happening between the church and the culture. And as I was looking at the Corinthian church, this is what they had. They had, even though they were brand new, they had this collision of church and culture. And you had Paul who came in to found this church in Corinth, uh, get everything established, move along in his journeys, only to find later that the, the, this pure body of Christ that he had established now had collisions with their culture and were having problems. And you know, let's fast forward 2,000 years, roughly. The church is still suffering this thing uh, called culture. And, and so I find that uh, today we have to get back to understanding the fact that the church will always be at war with the culture, not from the perspective of we are out there like warring against people in the, that stand for certain things of our culture, but that the culture and Christ will constantly be a conflict and we find ourselves in the middle and we have to choose you this day whom you will serve. There is a command in scripture to come out come out from among her. We, we often say that we are a people that are in the world, but not of the world. And I think we know the difference between the two. We can be in something, but not of something, uh, meaning not a part of something. And so we see this contrast that's happening. So if you read Paul's epistles to the churches of uh, the churches that he founded, you're go you're going to find him correcting constantly. So when he writes back, he's correcting things that went wrong after he left. All right. So it's usually some kind of foreign teaching or a moral failure that has crept in and deceived the young church. So First and Second Corinthians is no exception to that. In fact, the church in Corinth seems to have uh, the most problems of all of the churches that he founded. If you look at the epistles, this, they were the ones that seemed to be the most problematic. Um, but they also seem to be quite unique in a lot of ways as well, which is interesting. As we study Corinthians, uh, you may quickly notice that the uh, Corinthian culture is not all that different than what we are facing now in America. In regards especially to prosperity and our moral decline. So I feel that First and Second Corinthians is becoming more and more of a relevant book for the Western church and where we've fallen into many of the same traps. And that's why we're looking at this. So the purpose of this series is to identify some of these problem themes 
and to understand Paul's responses to these problems. Um, I think we too have to be on guard. And if any of these things apply to us, we must correct them swiftly and decisively. And I'm speaking that specifically to Waylife community, but to the broader church as well. I don't have any responsibility for the broader church. I can't control what happens in the broader church. I can use whatever platforms I can, internet, social media, to say certain things. But ultimately, who am I responsible for? First, myself and my walk. That's number one. Then my family. And then Waylife community. Okay? In that order. And if that, any of those get out of order, it doesn't matter um, about the rest of the church. We have to first take responsibility for ourselves. All right, so let's get a little ba- bit of background. Before we jump in, and I am hoping to get through all of the first chapter, which is going to be a challenge, uh, no doubt. But um, I read a, uh, some of you have heard me speak of this guy before. His name is, he's a, a Bible commentator called David Guzak. He's a newer commentator. He brings in classic commentators uh, like Charles Spurgeon, Andrew Poole, different ones, uh, which have been very, very good. Um, and I like this guy. And I wanted to give you a, a background of um, Corinth. I could have written it all out myself, but why reinvent the wheel? David Guzek does a really nice job, so I'm just simply gonna read, if I could, what he writes about some of the history and some of the background of the Corinthian church at the time that Paul was, uh, had founded it and was writing to them. And David writes this, Corinth was one of the great cities of the ancient world and a community where very much was very much like Southern California. It was prosperous, busy, and growing. It had, deserved a repu- it had a deserved reputation for the reckless pursuit of pleasure. Mm. Corinth had a rich ethnic mix. It was a center for sports, government, military, and business. When Paul came to Corinth in AD 50, the city was famous for hundreds of years Uh, before he was born. Ancient writers considered Corinth, quote, rich, prosperous, always great, and wealthy. The Romans destroyed Corinth in 146 BC, but Julius Caesar rebuilt the city 100 years later. Many things made Corinth famous. Pottery and, quote, Corinthian brass. You ever heard of that before? Which was a mixture of gold, silver, and copper from the city were world famous. Famous athletic contests known as the Isthmian Games, second only to the Olympian Games, were held at the Temple of Poseidon in Corinth every two years. Athena, Apollo, Poseidon, Hermes, Isis, uh, Serapis, and Asclepius, among others, had temples in honor, uh, in, uh, of their honor in Corinth. But most prominent was the worship of Corinthian Aphrodite who had more than 1,000 female prostitutes and priestesses in her service. Corinth was a major city of business, especially because of its location. It was on on a four and one half mile wide uh, isthmus of land. And its narrowest part 
uh, of the land was crossed by a level track called Diocles, over which vessels were dragged on rollers from one point to another. It was in constant use because seamen were thus enabled to avoid sailing around the dangerous uh, uh, area of Malia. Sailors wanted to avoid the dangerous journey around Malaya, which was indicated to, uh, by two popular proverbs, quote, let him who sails around Malia forget his home, unquote. And second one, quote, let him who sails around Malia make his will first, unquote. If the ship was too large to be dragged, the cargo was unloaded and loaded onto another ship and other sides. So you, you see the influence of its location mm -hmm. and why this was such an important city. The Corinthian people were also world known for partying, mm -hmm. drunkenness, and loose sexual morals. The term, of, I don't know if I'm going to get this right, Corinthiazomai was well known in the Roman emperor, emperor, uh, Empire, excuse me, and it literally meant, quote, to live like a Corinthian. Mm -hmm. But everyone knew what it really meant, quote, to be sexually out of control. I think I'll, I'll stop there. I'll, I'll, I will say this. Uh, f um, Fee sums up his analysis of Corinth by writing, all of this evidence together suggests that Paul's Corinth was at, was at once the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. Leon Morris describes Corinth as, quote, intellectually alert, materially prosperous, but morally corrupt. So this was the Corinth that Paul finds himself in and begins to establish this new church. So he sets this up, and we won't get into all of that, but it's in, in Acts chapter 18, talks about how he spent his time in Corinth. And he uh, sets this up, and then he moves along, only to have some, uh, some things reported to him that were going on in this church. And so he writes back to them uh, to correct them. All right, enough background on Corinth. You get the idea. And you know, there are parts of America that we, we could probably say, mm, probably doesn't relate exactly like Corinth, but there are parts of America that absolutely look just like what we described here, mm -hmm. isn't it? There are certainly people everywhere that would embody this type of uh, cultural mindset and ways of living. And I think we've bumped into it, haven't we? We've bumped into a lot of this mentality. So now let's go into Cor uh, uh, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And we're going to start at verse 1 and we're going to go down through. I'll, I'm reading, of course, as usual, from the Christian, Christian Standard Bible, which might read a little bit different from some of yours. Verse 1, Paul, called an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sothesthenes, our brother, 
All right, so first here, called as an apostle is an important thing here. Now, he often refers to himself as an apostle, but he says here, and specifically called by apostle of Jesus Christ by God's will. He gives it a little extra than what you're going to see in some of the other epistles. And the reason is, is this becomes a problem that he's contending, because later on, there's a, you're going to find that there's people questioning Paul's credibility. And since he was not one of the original apostles that followed Jesus, but was called, as he says, someone born in the wrong time, <laughs> all right? Um, he was, though, called directly by Jesus when he had the encounter, right? And so he finds himself um, in this position having to uh, uh, talk about his, his uh, credibility. But <clears throat> anyway, so he goes on here. And he says, verse two, the church to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints and all those in, in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, brother, uh, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, now what's really interesting here is right away he's going to begin to show this contrast and begin to um, unfold for us the problem that Corinth has. And he actually says it, whether it's intentional or unintentional, he says it right there in verse 2. To the church of God, good, at Corinth bad. So Corinth calls out the culture, but God calls out, calls out their nature and who they're called to be. So keep this in mind. We can say to the church of God in America. The church of God is who we are. America is where we are. Don't confuse the two. to the church of God at Corinth. The other thing that we need to walk away with is that he says this specifically, those sanctified in Christ Jesus called as saints. He's talking about Christians here. He's talking about the true church of God. He's not talking about posers. He's not talking about people who are just sort of religious in nature. He's talking about those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints. Important because he's going to go through and talk and say some very difficult things to hear. Later on, when he starts talking about sexual immorality, you can, I mean, the stuff that he's, he's like, I got reports that you're, ha some of you are having sex with your mother-in-law. That's, I mean, that's what was going on in the church. And we're going to get into that. It gets pretty, pretty gnarly later on. And he's talking, going to be talking about drunkenness and all of these kinds of things at the Lord's Supper, right? Of all places. He's going to talk about all of these things, but he's talking to believers in Jesus Christ. He's talking about the church. Therefore, we need to be looking at this and say he's talking to us as well. Amen. Okay? He goes on, though, and he says another key thing here in verse 2. He says, with all of those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ. The same calling and lordship of Jesus is universal across the church. Mm -hmm. All right? Not just in America, not just in Africa, not just in China. It's everywhere. The gospel is universal, right? Amen. There are not 
different expectations of how a Christian should live from one culture to the next as it relates to obeying the gospel and the standards of righteousness that Jesus demonstrated for us. They're universal. Now the applications of those look different. Certainly you're going to go to other cultures and other countries and you're going to see them, their expression of worship different from what you may have seen back home. So there's these differences certainly in the manifestation of this worship and how we, we worship Christ. But Christ changes not. He's uni- the gospel is universal. The people of the way has certain earmarks to it. Righteousness, peace, and joy, and the Holy Ghost. The fruits of the Holy Spirit are, use, are, are universal across all cultures, right? I mean, I've been to Haiti seven times, right? We've, I've, I've seen their worship. I've seen their, how, how, they, how they operate as a community. It looks a little different from us. But when I go there, I feel like I'm a brother Amen. to them. They feel like my brothers and sisters. Why? Because there's something universal that holds us together. We might speak different languages. We might have different customs. We might have things that are acceptable and not acceptable. But there's something that binds us together. And Paul calls this out immediately. That we are one body with one gospel and we need to be centered around Jesus. What he had demonstrated for us and what he teaches Keep this in mind as we move forward because he starts to build this, this concept. Okay, let's continue on. Verse four. I always thank God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Can we all say amen to that? Amen. It is, these are beautiful words. That, that Paul speaks over this, this troubled body of believers. Now, he's about to rip them apart, but he starts off by saying, I thank God for you, and I remember you always. And he's not just paying lip service. He's genuinely concerned about them, and he loves them. And because he loves them and that God has uh, enriched them so much, that's why he corrects them, because he doesn't want to, them to lose what they have been given all this while he was coming in to preserve it he's coming in to correct some things but the corinthians as we we saw in some of the background they were an enriched people again think about their culture right there was wealth there was knowledge influence and resourcefulness now you know this when you're brought up in a culture and a way of thinking does that not translate over into your faith and how you begin to think about your faith? If you're a resourceful person and a cerebral, you know, you've got an active mind and you're a resourceful mind before you were a Christian, when you become a Christian, do you get dumb all of a sudden? No. 
No, of course not. That comes over with you. It's not bad necessarily. It can trip you up as we're going to begin to see here because a lot of that resourcefulness and intellectualness, uh, intellectualness is carnal. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a problem, right? So it needs to be redeemed. It needs to be changed, right? What's Romans chapter 12 say? Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world, right? Or the ways of thinking of this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewing of your mind. Your mind has to be renewed as we come across. So here we have this culture of wealth, knowledge, influence, resourcefulness. Could be really good in the body of Christ, right? Have you ever gone to somebody and say, boy, they'd make a great Christian? <laughs> Let me tell you, everything you see in them that is going to make them a great Christian is going to be their big hang-up yeah. <laughs> and their big stumbling block because God doesn't compete with our intellectual property and experience because it's tainted, it's carnal, even though it looks good. Even though you might be really talented, it's tainted with sin and carnality. It was no different though here, the, the Corinthian church, because of their intellect, because the, they wanted everything that God had. I think that's probably why the church exploded so quickly, right? They were open to the things of God. And he says here uh, that you do not lack any spiritual gift. Now, in 1 Corinthians 12 which, and 13 and 14, we're getting, it talks about all the gifts, of the, not all of them, but a, a select bunch of the gifts of the Spirit um, that was, was given, right? And they had them all. They were all in operation, big time. But they were carnal in the way they were being utilized. See the mixture. See the problem. See the collision of happening of a people and a culture. They had all of the spirit and they had the teachings of the gospel. But with this, but, but with this enrichment, there was severe carnality in the culture mixed with it. Paul needed to correct this in the remainder of the book. All right, so now let's get into verse 10. Now he's gonna call out. So he's, he's done saying, hey, you got all this cool stuff. You're great people. I'm really, thank God for you. But, and the first but here, doesn't actually say but. It says now in my translation. Now, <laughs> therefore, but. Um, he's going to hit him with what I believe is the biggest problem. The biggest problem that, that really becomes the seat and the foundation for all of these other problems. And this is nothing new to Waylife community because we have talked about this endlessly and we will continue to talk about this endlessly because it is so critical in the body of Christ. Verse 10. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree in what you say, <coughs> that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. What are we talking about here? Unity. Unity, unity, unity. I'll say it one more time. I've got to keep repeating this. If you, brothers and sisters, are unified in Christ we can 
have an entire assault from hell itself Amen. come against you, come against us, and we will not move. Amen. But if we are disunified, we are not walking in unity as a body of Christ, the devil can throw a paper clip at us and we'll break apart. Amen. It is the bedrock of our communion in Christ is unity. That's in fact what communion is all about, right? And you've heard me speak on this over and over and over again. Ephesians chapter 4, 3, Paul says to, to the church of Ephesus, making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. To the church in um, Colossae, he says, above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. It's an ongoing theme with Paul to these early churches. Unity, unity, unity. But not just unity for unity's sake. This is the key. Not unity for unity's sake. You can unify around anything. And come on, just look, just look at society. Look at the world. Cause, political causes. Special interest causes. You can get so passionate and you can find a bunch of people that are so passionate about the same cause as you. You unify around it. You offer a lot of grace for each other and help for each other and you work together for that unity. But that unity will only get you so far. We unify around Christ who doesn't, where we don't conform to the thing, excuse me, where we're not coming around to simply unify ourselves because we have a special interest together. But we come together for someone who literally changes us to become like him. Amen. That's a different type of unity. Amen. This unity is the key theme that acts as a root theme throughout the book. Division in the body of Christ is a cancer and it causes most of the issues we see in the church today. We become divided over important topics like doctrine and sin, but we also become divided over trivial things like service formats, styles of worship, music, or the color of the new sanctuary carpet. I mean, there's, we've seen, and I've heard many uh, stories about churches dividing over literally something as trivial as the color of the sanctuary carpet. That's the paperclip. There are big things that do come against our unity. There are, there are deceptions. There are a whole variety of, uh, of um, false doctrines that, that a church could, could seep into a church and left unchecked. It could divide the church and it may need to if you have people that are unrepentant of these things. It may need to, but it just stresses. But as it divides, that, that part that breaks off, they better preserve the unity and make sure that they guard themselves against letting that stuff come in again. If you wanna do a really, really good study, particularly the Old Testament, study the, to the topic of mixture. The biggest issue that God had 
with the Israelites was mixture. Who they married, the idols that they kept, they didn't burn and throw away and destroy, the people that they didn't kick out, the mixture of different, different religions and influences. It was always a problem with mixture. You can't be mixed and be unified. Division. Division was the big issue. In this case, the Corinthians were divided over the teachings of different leaders. Now watch this. Verse 11. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I am saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that I baptized none of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. I love how thorough he is. Oh, oh yeah, there was this one and there was that one. But he's, but he's, he's up front about it. So I love the, the raw nature of what Paul is saying here. But don't miss what he's saying. Clearly, we see that besides Paul, um, there was Apollos and Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter. Peter. Apostle Peter, right? They were influential also. So Apollos and Cephas, or Peter, were influential on this young Corinthian church as well, right? In what ways we don't fully understand or know. And these were good God-fearing men who accurately taught the gospel, right? These weren't false teachers. Get this. I need you to hear this. These were not false teachers coming in. These were good people. These were good God-fearing people coming in and people were aligning them. The Corinthians were aligning themselves and say, well, I'm a, I'm a follower of Paul. Another one says, no, I'm a follower of Peter. Another one says, no, I'm Apollos. And one says, well, no, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a follower of Christ. You can almost see the, why did he list Christ in there? You say, well, isn't that good? It's the arrogance of it. Do you see it? It's in the, you can hear the arguing of who we follow in the, ar in the arrogance in that. So we see this, these are God-fearing people, but as with any teacher, Paul, Apollos, and Peter, as with any teacher, they would have themes that they focused on, more or less, right? So think about this. They had their own personality and their way of saying things. So if you take 10 really good preachers, right? good God-fearing preachers, and you have them all preach on one topic, what are you going to get? Ten different, ten different, ten different perspectives on the same topic, right? And of those ten, what are you likely to do? You're going to pick your favorite. Why do you pick your favorite? What makes up picking your favorite? Typically, the personality that you resonate with. If you're an intellectual person that loves to dig deep, you're going to gravitate towards the intellectual teacher that digs deep. If you're the one that only likes to look at things at a 10,000 foot view, please don't bore me with the details. Just give me the Cliff Notes version and I'm good. That type of a preacher is the one that you're going to gravitate towards. Right? 
if you're like the hard one that loves, you know, I, I grew up with a harsh mom or a dad and I got rebuked a lot and that's what we need in the body of Christ, you're going to want the fire and brimstone preacher, right? That's the one that you're going to gravitate to, typically. I'm talking in generalities, of course, but we can all see that, can't we? So here you're going to have a variety of people coming in and preaching different things. And this was a problem for Paul. And then Paul includes himself. That's what I love, that the humility goes, were you baptized in my name? Did I die for you? He begins, he doesn't put down Apollos. He doesn't put down Peter. He does, certainly doesn't put down Christ, but he puts down himself as an example. And he says, I'm a nobody here, right? And he's, but the, the whole point that he's setting around is, is Christ divided? And that's the big thing. We, we can relate with people and teachings, but the problem is it's fine until that becomes the person that you follow. I'm trying not to go over this point too quickly, right? We do this in our culture. We follow people and personalities rather than truth. Even if what they're saying is true, we find ourselves gravitating more to the person than the truth. We do this in sports. We do this in music. We do this in government. We do, come on. You, you have a favorite in government? How many times you know, somebody you just absolutely respect and they can do no wrong, they can say no wrong, and when they do, you kind of explain it away? Come on, you do this to every politician out there, right? Did you ever find a preacher, somebody, a TV preacher or TV personality that you absolutely like? You're like, I like this guy. I like this guy. And when they say something that's a little off, you just explain it away and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. whoa. They're, 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 no, they're, I know they said that, but it's, it's okay. It's, it's, they're good. They're good. They're good. We, we begin to defend them. We do this all the time. We, we come, sometimes if we, we base our, 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 our faith on the personality of the person that we connect with and we begin to divide a church can begin to i see this all the time right so as the as the ministry overseer pastor of of, of way life i at time to time well not at time to time all the time really people are sending me watch this video watch this teacher this you know duh, 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 and before you know it i'm like they're saying it without saying it why can't you be more like or you should be doing this right you feel it. You feel that pressure. It happens a lot. And I'll listen to them and say, yeah, it's great, but I'm not going to be that person, right? I might be able to talk about some of those things, but you're going to be disappointed because I'm not going to present it the same way, right? Or we could do those things, but that's not something that we're really called to. That might be good for their ministry, but not for our ministry. Now, and then we get really, no, but that, I have such a respect for their ministry. And they're, they're successful. Look how big they are. They're international. They're big time. So obviously they're going to know more than you. That's called the cult of personality. And that is exactly what the church in Corinth was doing. They were following people. Don't ever follow a person. Don't, least of all me. 
Don't ever follow me. Not this way. Not that way. You follow Christ and the gospel. And if I ever say anything or do anything that's contrary to the gospel, it is your responsibility to rebuke me. I expect you to do it. I need you to do it. Because if I'm blind, and there's times that I can't see perfectly, I need people to come and to, to correct me on my blindside areas. Okay? That's the body of Christ. That's why we universally come together to make up the, and form the body of Christ. Okay. How are we doing here? All right. The cult of personality was at the source of this division that they had. So let's take this just a little, he continues on and takes this argument a little bit further. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent, eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. Amen. So Paul is here is further underscoring the problem with personality and the problem with following a person other than Christ. If our knowledge of Christ is based on fancy teaching and preaching that tickles our senses or is only cerebral, our faith will not be based on Christ, but it will be based on your feelings. I'm going to say that again. If our knowledge of Christ is based on fancy teaching and preaching that tickles our senses or is only cerebral, our faith will not be based on Christ, but on our feelings. And they're fickle and easily changed. Or it will be based on our knowledge only and not our faith. Without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. If you can take God and have a, you got a good speaker that can just boil him down, simplify him down to this. And it's like, and you go, yeah, I can, I can wrap my head all around that. I got it. I understand that fully. There's no room left for faith. And it's a deception. Because we will live all of eternity and still live from revelation to revelation about the greatness and the complexity of our God. You cannot wrap him up into this box of your cerebral knowledge and understanding. You can't. Many have tried and all have failed. Paul says that the message of the, cro the cross is not one of knowledge of power of power it's foolishness in fact to the people who don't know him the people who don't we go and we, we you explain the message of the cross to people and they're like that doesn't make any sense of course it doesn't because it's not of this world it's not of human nature 
We have to know Christ on something deeper than someone's personality and their clever way of describing the gospel to us. So I don't like tricks. When you're talking about evangelism and sharing the gospel, through the years there are many, many, many methods out there of how you speak to and share the gospel. I don't, they all sound great, but I don't accept any of them as the way to do it because we have to be moved by the Holy Spirit. It requires the Holy Spirit. We need to connect with some people deeper than just in knowledge. There must be a demonstration of his power. Earthly wisdom, as we're wrapping up here, verse 19, earthly wisdom is what he's getting into here. Verse 19, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this, this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Remember, the context here is division. Remember? And the lack of agreement among the brethren. The Corinthians were so caught up in the cult of personality and rational thinking and thinking in this worldly wisdom that they had become divided. How much is of the church today is divided? Because we have gone off to follow someone's rational thinking of God. It cuts, it is Jesus who cuts through the cultural norms and worldly wisdoms. Jesus is not to be related to our cultural standard. He sits outside of them. The Corinthians and we have this problem though. We compare and rationalize our understanding of Jesus through our understanding of our culture. And this is a grave mistake. And this is what he's pulling out. The clash of culture, divisions, personalities. Do you see it? Mm -hmm. See what's happening here in this young Corinthian church. So what does he say? He finishes up with this in verse 26. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling think about yourself for a second consider the calling not many were wise from a human perspective not many of you he's talking about right not many of you were wise from a human perspective not many powerful not many of noble birth instead God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something. I love the wording there. So that no one may boast in his perspective. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 
in order that, as it was written, let, no, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. <laughs> he took a nobody like you and made you royalty. That's what God does. He takes nothing and makes something. So we need to be careful not to think so much of ourselves or anyone else. We and they, in God's sight, were nothing and is nothing without him. Our value and their value is not based on ability or merit or achievement or gifting or personality or social status or success or the size of their ministry or the rationality of their teaching or anything of the sort, but Christ alone. Amen. Because it's not about you and it's not about them. It's about Christ and his gospel. The division and the disunity that the Corinthian church was plagued with was a mixture of ideas, a mixture of personalities and teachings, a mixture of culture, the things that they knew, the wisdom that they understood, the knowledge that they had mixed up with Christ. And the teaching in the gospel of Christ was no longer pure among them. With that in mind and as a foundation, you're going to see now as we move from problem to problem that he goes to, that's really what it's rooted in. The problems that they have and the divisions that they was among them. This is the foundation. We have got to guard ourselves. We have got to guard ourselves against mixture. Last word. I went and I uh, spoke at camp meeting at Patterson Grove. 155-year-old United Methodist, old United Methodist camp meeting. It's been going on for 155 years. They've had camp meeting. And I got to speak there twice. And at the end of camp meeting, there was a guy who was involved with a lot of the camp meeting. He came up to me at the end, it was our last meeting, and we shook hands and he said something to the effect of, well, I hope, you know, if our paths don't cross again, God bless you and your ministry and, and uh, it's nice to, nice to get to know you a little bit and, and things. And, and I said, likewise, and we had a little bit of a conversation and he said something to me. He, the conversation turned towards some relatives that he had. And you know, how, you know how conversations just sort of move into other things. And, and he was talking about uh, some, some uh, 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 relations. I think it was a brother or brother-in-law or something along that line who was very dogmatic in their interpretation of scripture. And I said, okay, that's, that's fine. And he goes, and he's a flat earther. You know flat earthers, right? And I said, wow, that's really interesting. Yes, he's so literal in, in the way that he reads the Bible that that's the only way that he can reconcile the earth is that it's flat. And I said, well, that's interesting. And then he says, you know, it's a kind of 
uh, he, what did he call me? Um, an inerrant. He goes, I expect that you're an inerrant. And what he was meaning was that I have the view that God's word is inerrant. It doesn't have any errors in it, right? And I would say, yes, that's true. I believe in the inerrant word of God. I can trust it. Every word in this book. And he looked at me and he goes, well, I'm not an inerrant. Now, he had been ministering throughout these camp meetings. He goes, I'm not an inerrant. And he goes, there's just some things in scripture I, cannot, I can't rectify in my mind. And in that moment, and I wasn't quick enough because I'm not quick in these conversations. I thought of a great response 10 minutes later. <laughs> but I did have the thought in the moment, and I couldn't get it out, that I said, okay, so you are telling me that you've read the Bible and studied the Bible from cover to cover, and there were certain things that you don't understand, and the conclusion at the end is that must be wrong because I can't be. That's when you let too much culture, Amen. worldly wisdom, personality in this ungenerate mind, ungen unregenerated mind, and you don't deal with it, you'll get off base. You get deceived. What is your faith based on? What is your faith based on? What are you following? Who are you following? Be a Berean. Be a Berean. When Paul preached to them about Christ, they sought the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was true. Wisdom, right there. I hear what you're saying, Paul, and it sounds great, but we're going to check it out first. He didn't rebuke him for that. I don't see a letter to the Bereans. Amen. Amen. Lord, I want to thank you for your word, your inerrant word. We can trust you. Lord, let your word be true and every man a liar. Lord, we want to believe and be centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing else, not personality, not form, not function, not any of those things but around you. And we know, Lord, we will do it imperfectly in time. We know that we fail. We, but Lord, I thank you for the body of Christ that we together say, hey, are we on track? And when one gets off, we gently love and correct and pull back and all of these kinds of things. And not one person has the corner on the truth here, but Lord, we all bring to the table a perspective of the full body of Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for it. And we're constantly evaluating, are we in your perfect will? Are we doing what you, what you have taught us, Lord? Uh, and I pray you continue to teach us. And Lord, let us not chase after any, uh, any personality, any person, any popular teaching, yes. even as good as they may be. Let us never become a disciple of those things and not as disciple of Christ our Lord. Lord, we thank you. We love you and we appreciate your goodness and your grace towards us. Teach us, Lord, in this series what we need to do, what we need to correct, and deceptions that we have fallen for along the way. 
And we give you glory and honor, dear Lord. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. Amen.